people desperately want to think that Canada is good, that Canada is redeemable, that Canada can be saved, because if because that means that they can be saved because they've identified themselves as Canada, right? If Canada is irredeemable and I, you know, and I've decided that I am Canada, well, fuck, I guess, fuck me, I'm irredeemable. So, you know, I think people want to be able to redeem Canada for that reason. And I'm trying to suggest that we should not do that. We should actually just carve out a new identity. Forgotten Corner Podcast would not exist without our listeners. If you enjoy the work we are doing on this show and would like to support further, please consider a donation through our Patreon account, patreon.com backslash forgottencornerpod, or visit our website, forgottencornerpod.com. Welcome back to the Forgotten Corner Podcast. We acknowledge that the Forgotten Corner occupies unceded Indigenous land. We acknowledge that the Blackfoot Confederacy never surrendered its land in the signing of Treaty 7, but agreed to share it. The Forgotten Corner sits on Treaty 7 and Treaty 4 territory, traditional lands of the Siksika, the Kainai, the Pakani, the Stony Nakoda, and the Tsutina, as well as the Cree, Sioux, and the Soto bands of the Ojibwa peoples. We also honor and acknowledge that we are the Métis Nation within Region 3. The Forgotten Corner is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. If you'd like to check out other progressive podcasts from across the country, click the link we provide in our show notes. My name is Roberta Lexier, and I am the co-host of this episode of the Forgotten Corner podcast, our final episode in our first ever book club, maybe not our last ever, we'll see. Um, but uh, I am joined today by my 30 year on bestie in the whole world, Scott Schmidt. Hey, Scott, how are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good, I guess. I mean, not really, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's, hell- it's hellscape. That. That's fine. We'll talk a lot about that today. That's another that's another thing. Yeah, that's right. Um, and we also have our awesome producer who's usually behind the scenes, but on these episodes actually kind of pops out. So yay for that. Uh, Mo Cranker, how are you doing? I am doing well, unironically. So that's good. Un- unironically. unironically. We're probably going to well, have to talk that's... more than ever today because our other co-hosts is like asleep, I guess. I don't know. I guess he bailed Not even on that us. early. Yeah, that jerk. Anyway, we're very excited today about this episode, not Jeremy, I guess, but uh, the rest of us are very excited about this episode. I'm just kidding. I'm sure Jeremy is going to be excited to listen to it later. Um, But we are joined today by the author of the book that we have been spending the last few months uh, working our way through Canada in the world. Uh, Dr. Tyler Shipley is here. Uh, He is a professor of society, culture, and commerce in the Department of Liberal Studies at Humber College in Toronto. He holds a PhD in political science from York University, the strike capital of Canada's post-secondary sector, so woot woot to that. Um, And he publishes in uh, academic and popular pieces all over uh, the place, internationally as well as locally. Um, His first book, Ottawa and Empire, examined the role Canada played in the 2009 military coup in Honduras. Um, And his second, the one we're going to talk about today, Canada in the World, Settler Capitalism and the Colonial Imagination, has received amazing acclaim here on our podcast as well as elsewhere. um, And honestly, has been blowing our minds for the last few weeks um, or a few months. So um, I also just want to throw in before I welcome Tyler that he is maybe as, as big a Blue Jays fan as I am. 
am, though I think we might have to duel that out in a, in a back alley sometime once baseball comes back. So, um, Tyler, welcome to the show, and uh, we're glad to have you here. Thanks. Thanks so much, Roberta. And yeah, well, back alley, you know, when, once back alleys are safe again, uh, you know, we can duke this out and, and get to the, to the true core of who's the biggest Blue Jays fan. Absolutely. We'll pull out some like lineup cards and, and battle it out of who knows. If I made Roberta that. the fan she is, does that give me like a trump card? We may have to recite lineups from the 90s, you know, like I could run through the batting order from the 92 World Series team. You know, I can talk to Kelly Gruber tagging Deion Sanders in the foot, you know. Roberta and I watched the last game of the 93 World Series at Jay Flattiger's. Do you remember that guy? Well, of course, sure you do. dated him. But anyway, all right. Let's, let's go. <laughs> anyway, I just thought I'd throw the Blue Jays in because when else am I going to get to talk to Tyler about it? Yeah, okay, they might anyway. not even play for a while, so... Exactly. Yeah, yeah, this is the, the apocalypse world we live in. We don't even have baseball to so distract So do you support us. the labor strikes of universities, but not of players associations? <laughs> As, if. Baseball? <laughs> As if. As if. Hey, if the players were on strike, I would be out on the picket lines with I them. Know, but they are locked kid. out and it's a different situation. <laughs> Fucking, labor I mean, I draw the line matter. at baseball. I really want to see opening day anyway let's go sorry anyway it My doesn't fault. matter okay so um as we often like to do on the forgotten corner um when we have guests here is we like to give them an opportunity to situate themselves um really in the political world but also kind of in our um physical world whatever however that works and so uh tyler we thought we'd just give you a, a bit of time to to give us some background on you. And I guess what I'm most interested in is how do you go from being, from reading the book, I'm assuming a kid in Manitoba to writing this book that really um, kind of blows open the, the Canadian history as we know it. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it was a strange process, I think, to go from, you know, growing up in the sort of lower middle class in Winnipeg, you know, and, and accepting all of the standard stories about Canada to, to ending up here, you know, writing this book, doing this work. But, um, you know, I think Winnipeg is an interesting place to grow up. Um, I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with the city, but it's, you know, it, it's, I, I think many of the contradictions of Canada are, are really present in Winnipeg. It's, you know, on the one hand, it has a long history of labor uh, sort of radicalism. Um, you know, it's obviously the Winnipeg general strike, but even beyond that, there's a, there's a long history of, of, you know, really genuine working class uh, consciousness in Winnipeg. Um, and yet at the same time, there is this deep segregation in that city. I, I would, in my experience, Winnipeg is the most segregated city I've lived in. I'm talking about Indigenous and non-Indigenous people specifically. Um, you know, it's the largest urban Indigenous population in Canada. Uh, and yet, you know, so much uh, tension, so much racism, um, you know, the divide is so deep. Um, so, you know, I, I sort of grew up in this context of like, on the one hand, a city that fosters a certain kind of working class consciousness. And on the other hand, one that is so deeply interwoven in settler colonialism and those and those dynamics, um, none of which I knew at the time, <laughs> like, you know, none of that shit was on the radar. I was just a kid. I was just kind of living. But, um, you know, over the years, I think I sort of sort of piece some of these things together. I was lucky to bump into some really solid um, um, Marxists in Winnipeg who kind of showed me the ropes in terms of a different way of understanding history. Um, and they kind of then shunted me off to Toronto where I did some graduate work. And, you know, I just gradually 
found myself questioning the things that I've been taught my own, my entire life about Canada. Um, you know, remember when the war in Afghanistan and Iraq began, um, you know, and Canada was, was part of those, uh, you know, pretended not to be in Iraq at the start, but, you know, was deeply involved. And I remember, you know, I knew this was bad. I knew this was bad. I knew that like bombing these countries was not going to fix anything that had happened from 9-11. I, I just I, intuitively, even without the intellectual kind of understanding of it, I instinctively knew it was wrong and I, and I clearly could see that Canada was involved. And it started this process of rethinking what I thought I knew about Canada, um, which, you know, it was a gradual long process of, of piece by piece, you know, okay, Haiti, you know, what happened in Haiti? Canada overthrew the government of Haiti. That's strange. Why would they do that? You know, I'll dig into this, uh, you know, and then I end up digging into another piece and another piece. Um, you know, I, you mentioned my book about Honduras. I was in Honduras in 2009 when that government was overthrown. And I was by that point already very critical of Canada, understood the problems. And yet even then I was shocked that I had literally just watched a government be overthrown and the military take over the streets. I was literally being shot at with protesters in the streets and the Canadian government was caping for the very military that was shooting at me. And that experience, you know, it like leaves a mark and it just kind of changes the way you approach these things. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the general process by which I came to this. I think the one other thing I would add is that as I started um, thinking through Canada's history it's, and, that, and its relationship to foreign policy, I started rethinking my own family history, um, you know, and, and had, had to grapple with the fact, for instance, that I, you know, why am I a Winnipegger? Why did I grow up in Winnipeg? Because my ancestors took up land in Manitoba that had literally just been stolen. I mean, within 10 years of Canada sending a military force to ransack the Métis at Red River, um, my family, you know, my, my ancestors take up a piece of land. Like literally the blood is still soaked in the land that my ancestors take up. And so, you know, I've had to sort of work through, well, how do I relate to that? You know, what's my relationship to that fact? Should I be defensive about it? Should I be, well, I certainly shouldn't be proud of it, but you know, should I be ashamed of it? Um, you know, should I hide it? Should I deny it? You know, how do I relate to that? And so the answer is I just, admit it. I just own it. It's just part of the story. It's just how I got here. Um, and I tried to do that in the book as well. I just want to stay on Winnipeg for a second, because just hearing you talk about Winnipeg, is just so exactly, it seems to me like we could replace Winnipeg with Regina. Hey, Roberta, just as far as like, it's very similar in that sense. There was a very strong indigenous population. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about sort of go back to your youth as how you sort of talk about where you started to realize the problem while you were there, because you said, obviously you were lucky that you met some Marxists that helped you kind of see the light. And I, I, in a lot of ways, had Roberta sort of showing me the way. But as a white kid growing up in Regina and as a white kid growing up in Winnipeg, I know I'm, I'm sure that it was similar in the sense that so much of the world around you was just racist and you didn't know it. And even your own, whether it was your parents or that generation, some of the ways they just spoke about the quote unquote Indian population was something that you you just grew up with this and like, when did you start to realize that like, hey, this is bad. Like, I, I hate to use this example, but I just want to give you sort of like the idea of where I'm at. Like we had this uh, indigenous friend in high school and he told me 
a zillion jokes that were like native jokes. Right. And I, at the time I like, I was like, I could tell them because this native guy told me. Right. And it was just like the whole world around me was so racist looking back on it. Just can you talk about your own experience as a, as a youth sort of being part of that and then uh, how you broke away from it? Good question. I mean, I, in some ways I think, uh, I mean, I think I just got lucky in breaking away from it because I easily could have not broken away from it because you're right, you know, growing up as a white guy in Winnipeg, um, yeah, I was just swimming in, in a sea of racist bullshit all the time, the obvious parts and the less obvious parts. And I think, you know, I think um, my family was sort of liberal minded enough that the more obvious parts didn't sit well. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, playing on a baseball team and, and when I, when we'd play against a team from the North end and there were indigenous kids on the team, I had teammates that would shout like racial slurs at the guys on the other team. Um, and that, you know, that didn't sit well with me. I think that I had enough of a, you know, sort of, there was enough liberalism baked into me to be uncomfortable with those overt forms of racism, but, um, the more subtle forms, the deeper, frankly, you know, and, and, and more entrenched forms of racism, um, you know, like my mother being afraid of downtown because there were indigenous people downtown, um, you know, and, and because poverty and, and, and so on that made downtown a scary place for a suburban white woman to go like that kind of stuff. I didn't really question, you know, it was just part of just the, as you say, the world that you grow up in. So, you know, how did I break out of it? I don't know, uh, except to say that, um, it was it was acrimonious like it, it involved a lot of breaking of former relationships i don't know many people from my high school years um i cut off most of the people i was close with i you know the person i was best friends with when i grew up um a whole you know basically my whole network of people from or most of the network of people that i grew up with i'm no longer really connected to i had to very consciously you know sort of break myself from that and find a new community to sort of surround myself with just to stay sane and and, in, and at some level out of a I think an instinct that uh, I didn't want to be part of that world um you know I, I knew that I wanted to to be something different and I didn't really know how to do that and so part of it was just like yeah creating a new social environment for me to be around I, and again I was lucky yeah like I bumped into a couple of old Marxists who taught me to see the world differently and that by itself was enough to get me thinking, well, maybe I should hang out with different people. Maybe I should go to different places and, you know, experience different things. Um, but yeah, you know, a lot of it is luck, uh, I think. And that, you know, I think maybe the point, the takeaway from that is that if it was just luck, um, you know, then what we need to do is create the conditions where more people can get lucky enough fall to, into that. Exactly. Yeah. To fall, yeah. you know, to that there be a realm where you can develop a different kind of consciousness about Canada and about class and about race and all of these things right so uh you know that's the challenge i guess that we have to take up we'll stop quickly to welcome co-host good friend jeremy appel who's clearly awake now appreciate you uh, making time for us buddy yeah uh my bad i um i didn't think i needed an alarm because it um because you've never met you yeah, <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. So that, so we're which is which is a a long winded way of uh, saying that I uh, slept through my alarm. 
yeah, Tyler, you were just talking about, or, uh, you know, between you and Scott, you were talking about this sort of um, journey that you have to go through and the kind of, uh, you know, I can sense in, in your response, the kind of pain of that journey and like having to sever relationships and other sorts of things. And I think all of us, as we went through reading this, I mean, I'm a Canadian historian, I know a lot of this stuff. And still, it was like, you know, wrenching open my soul to read all of this and, and be faced with this. And so I guess I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your own sort of experiences of, of this and, and how you kind of deal with that um, shattering of these mythologies and this, this, you know, pleasant history that we supposedly have. Yeah, you know, it's funny, right? Like, um, I grew up just being hammered with, with Canadian mythology and the idea that I had a Canadian identity. I mean, I literally remember taking a Canadian studies course, like in high school, that was like a required course to take. And the whole course was about like, what is the Canadian identity? What, what do we mean when we say we're Canadian? I mean, it was, they were, you know, it was literally imbuing us with a Canadian identity. And, you know, I mean, I, I was sucked into it. As I said to Scott, you know, having grown up as in a kind of liberal minded household, um, I liked the idea that Canada was like a peacekeeper um, you know, that Canada tried to do good in the world and like, yeah, it's a shitty fucked up world, but Canada's doing its best, you know, and, and that was something to be proud of. And, and so I kind of, I mean, I think I was never a crazy patriot, but I think at some level I was, I was into that mythology and that idea. Um, you know, and I certainly got sucked into a lot of the other, the sillier sides of Canadian mythology. I mean, I was a hockey guy. I cheered for team Canada. You know, I remember, you know, getting wasted when, Canada beat the USA in uh, Vancouver, I guess. Uh, it wouldn't have been Vancouver. No, I was smarter by then. It would have been an earlier one. I think in 2002, maybe. I don't know. One of the damn Olympics. Who cares? It's a great tournament, 2002. 2002 was a good tournament, right? And it was a, an overtime win. It was a great game, um, you know. And and so, you know, I had the face paint and everything. I mean, I was, uh, you know, all of this to say that, like, I was sucked into it, too. And, you know, I think, I think the most important you thing. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, Scott. Yeah. That was Jeremy. Oh, sorry, Jeremy. Yeah. Oh, I, I was just going to say, uh, listener, you can't see, but our, our faces are all painted red and white right now. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. I'm wearing a red and white hat, but it's... that's. I uh, actually have the maple leaf tattooed on my face. That's right. Oh, you I have mean, a face? That's, that's a face tat? Wow. That's a face that's tat. A that's not... That's a good looking tat. Yeah. It's, that's not tat. my natural, you know, uh, eyes and ears. Yeah, no, I was going to say the thing about about, you know, breaking from that kind of Canadian identity is we need to have an identity. You know, you can't you can't really, I think, emotionally and psychologically, you can, you need to know who you are in the world. You need to have some sense of where you fit. And I needed to have something else. And I think part of the challenge, you know, when we think about um confronting other people with the work in this book and with just the general idea of what Canada is, is like, okay, if we're going to take away something that for a lot of people has emotional meaning, which is like their connection to the idea of Canada, if we're going to take that away, we have to offer something else in return. Um, you know, and I was lucky enough to, um, you know, already have, I, I said, I, I grew up kind of lower middle class, you know, my family was, was sort of split between people who were deeper in the working class and then, you know, a little bit wedging their way out of the working class. But, you know, I had a lot of poor people in my family. I had a lot of union people in my family. And I, I when I started breaking from, you know, my sort of the sort of mainstream ideology I'd grown up with, 
there was a kind of a, a framework of something else, of working class solidarity that I could draw on. I got involved in my, my the first union I was in, I got involved in it. Um, you know, I'd, I'd worked some fucking shitty jobs, uh, you know, and knew the value of like fighting back against bosses. And I, and I understood, you know, the importance of solidarity. And I began to make connections amongst the Winnipeg labor movement and the Winnipeg left and, and building a different a sort of alternative identity ultimately, you know, which was to say that, you know, over the course of 10, 15 years, um, I just stopped thinking of myself as Canadian. I just don't. I mean, I don't, I have, I have no connection to that thing. Um, besides when I have to fill out forms, I guess, you know, otherwise, um, I, I have no, no, no part of my identity is wrapped up in being Canadian. Um, I think of myself as, as someone who's in the working class. And I think of myself as someone who's in solidarity with the, you know, international multiracial working classes, uh, and in solidarity with struggles against colonialism, like that's my identity now. And I, I think I needed to be able to have something like that to go, to go to, you know, in addition to like negating the Canada shit, if that I makes wanna, sense. We talked about this the other day. So I want to expand on it a little bit, Tyler, because uh, you talked about sort of the removing yourself from the Canadian identity. But of course, there are a lot of Canadians, uh, self-proclaimed progressive Canadians who still have sort of a, a, an extremely passionate uh, connection to a Canadian identity, to an idea of what Canada is. How do you just approach just everyday situations or navigate those times when you're in that situation or you're in a room full of people that are going crazy about the hockey win or whatever? Like, do you, does it give you a sense of frustration or do you have a patience for it? I mean, it depends on the day, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> uh, you know, I won't lie. I remember when, when in the world juniors, this goes back a few years, but I remember when Russia came back and scored for like five goals in the third period yeah, to beat that's Canada. Right. That's right. And I walked into a bar and watched that third period and people were just devastated. And I was fucking cheering my lungs out. And I mean, I got, I was lucky to get out of there alive, but you know, definitely I have days where, yeah, I mean, I really, it, it's very frustrating. It's really irritating to deal with this kind of Canadian nationalism. But on a good day, you know, uh, on a patient day, a generous day, you know, I, I, I try to sort of basically suggest to people that, you know, um, that the things they think Canada is about, the, the positive things, okay, you know, you don't want people to kill each other in a war. Cool. I don't really want people to kill each other in a war either. Um, that doesn't have to be a Canadian value. Because in fact, Canada has been very committed to seeing people die in wars. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's like a cornerstone of what Canada is about is, is seeing poor people, non-white people die in war. So, you know, if you don't like people dying in war, that's great. I'm with you. Let's drop the maple leaf shit and, and let's get behind something that also doesn't want to see people die in war. Or, you know, you don't like, uh, I don't know, children being forced to work you know, in, in difficult labor conditions. Well, hey, cool, me too. I'm totally down uh, with ending child labor. Unfortunately, Canada is premised on child labor. Uh, you know, Canada has, has had child labor here. Canada has employed child labor abroad. Canada supports regimes that, that promote child labor. So, uh, you know, drop the maple leaf. Stick with, you know, if you've got progressive values and you believe in them, that's great. We're on the same page. Um, but disassociate that from Canada because Canada has always been against those things. 
Do you remember in like 97 when Kathy Gifford got caught with the Walmart thing and we for like five minutes we were going to end child labor as a country and then we were just like wait jeans will cost fucking how much? Anyway, go, totally. ahead, go ahead Jeremy. So you're mentioning, uh, of course, uh, the, the, the type of nationalism you're referring to is, uh, of course, political nationalism, right? Just, you know, wrapping yourself in this flag and, 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 and talking about how great we are, um, which is obviously a very reactionary position, regardless of the intentions of those who hold it. But I think there's an important distinction between political nationalism and economic nationalism, right? Which seems to me to be a uh, sort of key component of a lot of like left-wing thought. Uh, can you uh, elaborate on that distinction? Sure. Yeah. Um, and and to be clear, I'm going to be critical of that of that kind of nationalism too. But um, you know, yeah, there's the kind of emotional patriotic flag waving shit, but then there is this argument, and I'm guessing this is probably what you're referring to, Jeremy, like sometimes called left nationalism, which which suggests that, um, you know, Canada is small and weak and beholden to, uh, you know, this larger power, the United States. Um, and, and for Canada to assert its own independent course in the world, Canada needs to somehow be economically independent, um, you know, independent of the US. Uh, the idea behind this is that, and it's a ludicrous idea um, that has no evidence whatsoever. Um, it's just pure idealism. But the idea is that somehow inherently Canadians would be good and would make good decisions if we just had the capacity to do that. But sadly, because Canada is so beholden to the United States, we just have to do whatever Uncle Sam tells us. Um, and this has been a pernicious, deep belief amongst, I would say, yeah, the kind of center left in Canada for like 50 years. Um, you know, this, this, I mean, you know, I'm thinking of the Linda McKegg book, um, Holding the Bully's Coat, you know, and this idea that it was like, it was weakness. And, and, and therefore, because we were, um, you know, being bullied by the US, we couldn't do what we wanted to because what we want to do as Canadians is be nice and be fair and be just. Um, and that's just so idiotic in my opinion um, and, and just completely rooted in never actually reading any of the history of what Canada has done. Um, it's idiotic on two fronts. In the first place, I disagree with the claim that Canada is economically beholden and bullied by the US. I understand why that, that argument gets made. There's no question that Canada is deeply dependent economically on the US as are, you know, pretty much, it, as is just about every country in capitalism. Um, you know, I mean, with a few notable exceptions, most capitalist states rely on their relationship with the US right now because it's the center of global capitalism. Um, and yes, Canada does especially rely on that relationship, but that's a decision that the Canadian ruling class undertook by choice. They weren't forced into it. They made a calculation and they have made calculations across 150 years. First, that they would work under the rubric of the British Empire and then gradually as the you know, seas of global capitalism shifted that they would work within the American Empire. And they do so to their own advantage. They do this as a choice, um, not, not because, you know, oh, they just really wish they could do something else, but they have to go along with it. Otherwise, the U.S. is going to invade or some silly thing. Um, so, yeah, I disagree with that initial claim that that Canada 
can't pursue its own foreign policy because it's economically dependent. And then I disagree with the follow-up, even if one accepted that first claim, I would disagree with the follow-up, which is that if Canada had its independence, it would behave so differently. I mean, this doesn't make any sense to me because everything that Canada does, everything that emanates from the Canadian state um, is about supporting capital, supporting Galen Weston, uh, you know, supporting Ted Rogers, the fucking third, supporting whichever capitalists needs the support of the Canadian state, whether here in Canada, you know, whether it's whether it's, you know, um, stealing indigenous territory to put through some sort of uh, pipeline project or, you know, a, a new mine or whether it's somewhere else in the world where a Canadian company, you know, is uh, subject of protests by people in El Salvador. And so the Canadian military goes to El Salvador to make sure that those protesters are killed so that the Canadian company doesn't have its profits interrupted. Uh, independently of the United States, <laughs> you know, the U.S. had nothing to do with that. So, um, yeah, I find that claim, I find that argument really weak. And I mean, I, I understand why people um, fall into it. And I think they fall into it in part because of the stuff that we were talking about before, that emotional um, connection to our Canadian identity. People desperately want to think that Canada is good, that Canada is redeemable, that Canada can be saved, because if because that means that they can be saved, because they've identified themselves as Canada, right? If Canada is irredeemable, and I, you know, and I've decided that I am Canada, well, fuck, I guess, fuck me, I'm irredeemable. So, I, you know, I think people want to be able to redeem Canada for that reason. And I'm trying to suggest that we should not do that. We should actually just carve out a new identity. But, but it seems to me there's, there, there's, there's a, you know, a, an important distinction between the sort of nationalism that we're indoctrinated in and then third world nationalism, right, that we try to uh, suppress everywhere, right, in Cuba. I mean, I guess Cuba is more complicated with Canada, um, as you write, but, um, you know, Vietnamese nationalism, Palestinian nationalism, um, you know, Indonesian nationalism, you know, et cetera. Like, wh wh what's the difference there? Well, the, the distinction I would make is um, I would and I and I think it's a slippery one, like it's a complicated distinction and one that I, I you know, I, I, I'm on kind of. I'm on tiptoes as I, as I work through it, but the distinction I would make is between, um, um, I guess, your, you know, standard nationalism, right-wing nationalism, and anti-colonial nationalism. That's specifically the distinction. I wouldn't even just say it's about Global North and Global South, because even in the Global South, you'll get very right-wing nationalisms, uh, you know, that, that can, can cause a lot of harm, which often get Canadian support. Uh, you know, you mentioned Indonesia, for instance. So it's like, okay, there's a good example. Canada supported uh, Indonesian nationalism when it was right-wing nationalism, when it was anti-worker, when it was, you know, um, about conquering other places, when it was about anti-communism. So Canada supports that type of nationalism, even in other countries, where Canada will not go. Uh, and you mentioned Cuba. There's a good example, right? Canada will not go there. Canada does not want to see Cuban nationalism when it's anti-colonial nationalism, you know, nationalism that is specifically organized around the fight against colonialism and capitalism and exploitation and oppression. Um, now, I still find that nationalism to be, uh, what's the word I want to use? Um, I'm still tentative uh, about, about that. And, you know, I've gone back and forth with people over the years and the left struggles with this question, you know, is anti-colonial nationalism good or is it ultimately going to be regressive? 
I don't know. I'm not really equipped to give an answer to that. But I definitely would agree that there's a distinction between that, you know, and and colonial nationalism, you know, like for pumping your fist for Canada as it goes out and conquers places and, and dominates people. Well, it seems that one is a response to the other, right? Yeah. That 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 people's in people in the third world are are see what their oppressors are doing and saying, well, what about us? Exactly. But then the problem, you know, the, I think where it gets complicated is, you know, you, you can look at anti-colonial movements that are grounded in nationalism, which is really good when they're responding to the colonial power, right? Algerian, you know, nationalism is a, is a big part of the struggle against the French uh, and, you know, an, an absolutely heroic defeat of the French colonizers in Algeria. But then after the French are kicked out, you're left with, okay, well now, now what, what do we have here? What is the ideology now that we move forward with? And nationalism isn't inherently a progressive ideology. I don't think it's not inherently about um, class struggle. As a matter of fact, it's inherently um, uh, different from class struggle in the sense that nationalism is about saying, Hey, whether you're the boss or the worker, whether you're the rich or the poor, what matters here is that we are all Algerian and not French. And that's great when you're trying to kick out the French and yeah, fuck the French in that context, hundred percent. But then afterwards it's about, oh, well, okay, well, hang on a second. Bosses and workers are the same just because we're Algerian. Eh, like, I'm not so sure. Right. I mean, that's where I, you know, I think that's where for, for the left, we have to start worrying about nationalism because, you know, ultimately the working class has no nation. Working class people have more in common with one another than they have with uh, the bosses, regardless of their nationality. So yeah, I mean, it's these are really interesting questions, Jeremy, uh, you know, that really, I think, get into some pretty nitty gritty uh, left socialist theory, but they are really important. Well, and I think you make a good point about, you know, nationalism is counter to the working class struggle. I mean, from my perspective, the main reason we create national units is to divide the working class and, as you say, unify these classes. I have a, a bit of a different question, and I don't want to nerd out on the academic side. I know many people listening won't be academics, but some will. Bridget, hi. Um, I want. I just <laughs> want to ask you, you know, as... As academics in this world, um, it, it's challenging to, to put forward a, a, a thesis that is so um, divisive, I guess, or so counter to the mainstream um, um, story. And, and your book reminds me a lot of, of Howard Zinn's book, The People's History of the United States. I'm sure it was an inspiration for you in this kind of, um, you know, social history of, of understanding from a different perspective. And, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you kind of manage that struggle through a very conservative space of academia that is very much imbued with this nationalist story right we're part of that that context and colonialism so i guess i'm just curious about how you you sort of navigate a world that's trying to stop this from happening when you're trying to get a phd and get out into the world and and get a job and all those things yeah that's a, a good question and and also i mean i'm humbled and flattered by the howard's in comparison i mean I, that book was so influential on me i remember reading it in high school and it, you know one of those turning point moments for sure. So um, I very consciously was thinking about that book when I wrote this one. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm really, really, uh, as I say, humbled and flattered to, to, to hear that. Um, and yeah, you're right. Like, I mean, this is work that is not popular uh, in, I would say, most sections of academia. And, um, you know, 
I, I think the book has enough, um, I think, shock value, if for lack of a better word, um, that that alone um, makes it interesting to some people who otherwise might not like the central argument. Um, you know, there's there's people who probably are uncomfortable with the central argument, but finding out for the first time that the Canadian Prime Minister met with Adolf Hitler and actually really liked him, and not only really liked him in the sense of like really liked him, yeah, like I mean, really liked him, but not only that, also was like really down with the worst parts of Nazism. Like it wasn't like he didn't know about the anti-Semitism. They have like long talks about precisely that, and like. You know, he writes in his diaries about like, oh, yeah, Von Norath said this about the Jews. And uh, I had to admit I had made the same argument myself. Like he's completely on board. I mean, that's so shocking to people that at some level, I think that alone um, makes it harder for people to ignore the work. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, let me let me say this. Having done work that is critical of Canada in a deep way like this for many years, um, I found it very difficult to get grants, <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, maybe I just suck at writing grant proposals. Uh, they are hard, um, but it's been a long time since Shirk even gave me the slightest hint of, you know, the possibility that I might get some Shirk money. Um, you know, uh, I don't get a ton of book reviews. I don't get a ton of invites to, um, you know, prestigious, uh, you know, you know, Canadian Historical Society or whatever it's called. Uh, they haven't been knocking down my door. So, I mean, I think that there's definitely an element of like I'm swimming against stream with this work and and it can be difficult uh, at times. I mean, the, the flip side of that is that there all, there's also a huge section of of Canadian sort of popular culture that is, I, I think, desperate for something more critical, um, which is why the book has had a good response. Like, I think there's a lot of people who intuitively have known for a long time that this shit isn't right this story does not hold you know um the world does not need more canada uh but haven't had necessarily like there hasn't been a place to go to, to get that completely and i was really trying to fill that void in a way like i really wanted you know in my most narcissistic egomaniacal megalomaniacal moments i wanted this to be a book that everyone every leftist in canada has this book on their shelf and every time someone says some bullshit about canada the leftist runs to their bookshelf to consult the book page right? 22 exactly i, I exactly. mean i do do that from time good. to time good that's what yeah. i wanted yeah no it's it like, is an, a, well, an incredibly valuable uh resource that is extraordinarily uh extensive sorry scott that's I okay i just been dying to ask him about this that whole aspect of this since we since i started reading it and it, it was like i, I said this to you the other day because it's like i don't know how to ask this where it doesn't come across like dude this book is super repetitive but it's like that is very clear as you go it's just like holy fuck we did it there too and it, it's kind of interesting to find out that that i think was very much your experience as you were going through it as well it was like jesus christ there too like there too there too and it's just like was that sort of obviously i think it is on purpose that you flooded us with those examples and and what was that like as you were sort of going through the same experiences that we obviously did as as readers yeah yeah no i mean I, I don't take offense you're right it does get a bit like relentless and repetitive at times especially in the later chapters and and, you know, I mean, 
I did do it on purpose. Yeah. You know, like, as we talked about the other day, you know, I definitely, you know, it's one thing for, for a person to realize that Canada did a bad thing in Colombia. Oh shit. Canada did a bad thing there. The people who made those policies must have made bad policies. Let's get, let's elect someone else who will make better policies. You know, that's very different from what I was trying to do, which is to say, no, 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 Canada did the same shit there that it did there and 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 just, you know, essentially hammering away at this point that this is the standard operating procedure. This isn't one bad person making one bad decision or one bad guy. Oh, this isn't, oh, the conservatives got in. Oh, because the conservatives were in there, bad things happened. Thank God we've got the liberals back, right? Um, No, that this isn't consistent. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, critical support right now, perhaps, and very, very critical support right now. But, um, you know, I yeah, was trying not, to make not the... that type of critical support. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, I think it was conscious. I was trying to to hammer the point home that this is a pattern. And, you know, Scott, what's interesting is when I was working on it, I was actually surprised at how um, consistent it was. Like when I started work on this book, I had been doing generally doing this work for a long time and I knew it was bad and I knew everything I was going to find was going to be bad. But when I started to sit down and actually write the book itself, um, you know, I started thinking, oh, I haven't really talked about, uh, uh, you know, I haven't talked about Colombia at all. I should look in to see what Canada was up to in Colombia. Did I miss something? Oh shit. Yeah. I missed a lot. It's bad, (laughs) you know, or, or, well, you know, I, I've kind of my, I've taken my eye off of Uganda, um, you know, but I was speaking with someone from Uganda the other day. Maybe I should look and see how, how what was Canada doing with Milton Abote and Idi Amin? Oh, shit. Canada was on the wrong side there, too. And it just became, you know, almost to the point where I would sit in the library and like put my finger on the map somewhere and wherever it landed, I'd be like, OK, well, let's go find out what kind of fucked up shit Canada did there. Um so yes, it was it was kind of relentless and kind of on purpose, but that was the point. The point was to say this is a pattern, this is consistent. It's because Canada is something. And and based on what it is, based on its foundations, its colonial foundations, it's just going to keep doing the same shit regardless of who's in office, regardless of what specific policies they they uh, do it through. They're going to do the same shit. They're going to pursue the same goals. I have a question that's almost uncomfortable to ask with my two Jewish co-hosts with me, but uh, this is kind of <laughs> how I, how I look at this, how we, but obviously the whole, the book is about Canada and the world, right? And I find, but I find that it really exposes the myth that all wars are fought between sort of the quote good, uh, the quote unquote good guys versus bad guys, right? And obviously we all know Hitler was a really bad guy and he needed to be stopped, but that doesn't automatically mean we were the good guys, right? And I just find that like in an obscurely really awful way, it's almost like the Holocaust became good for Western countries in the sense that it helped us with this narrative that we're the good guys and do you think that we were able to sort of exploit that and maybe I should be asking my co-host this more than than you but how we might have exploited that and that came up with that comic book superhero mindset of who we are and did you have any of that in mind while you were where you were writing it's a really interesting question um you know, I did spend a lot of time thinking through exactly how to how to present Canada's sort of 
walking through the 1930s and 40s and the Second World War, because, yeah, on the one hand, you know, that's the good war. That's the war that we had always been taught, even critical people. Uh, well, at least Canada fought the Nazis. Hey, we at least did that. We got that one thing right. And, you know, the last thing I wanted to do was at any level seem like I was suggesting that it was that, that it wasn't right. I mean, it was absolute Canada lands ultimately in the end on the right side of history, incredibly. Um, and, and they do, in fact, fight against the Nazis. Now, they don't play a central role in the fight against the Nazis. It was the Soviet Union that did that. But, um, you know, OK, yeah, a little bit. Canada plays a role there. Uh, and you want to give that, I guess, a little bit of credit. But the larger story for me was, in fact, the point was that Canada had supported the rise of Hitler for so long that there wouldn't have been any need for a Second World War on the scale of what it was had the Western powers, um, you know, drawn a hard line on fascism in the first place. Um, so for me, it was about explaining, well, why didn't they, you know, why were they sympathetic to fascism? Um, the answer being it was anti-communism. Uh, and that was at the heart of what Canada and the West was about, was crushing this new threat from the left. Fascism was a, a vehicle to do that, and so they would tolerate that. Plus, they were perfectly comfortable with the racism, the anti-Semitism. I mean, all that stuff fit neatly into what they had been doing for a long time um, as colonial powers. So, yeah, there is this support for fascism. And then when the Nazis uh, pose a threat to the British Empire, you know, when it becomes an inter-imperial struggle between two competing, you know, European empires, well, all of a sudden now Canada still sides with Britain in that, uh, in, in that sort of struggle. And so, yeah, it, Canada ends up kind of in this weird way fighting against fascism, I would say reluctantly. Uh, I mean, certainly William Lyon Mackenzie King was reluctant. He writes to Hitler in 1939 on the eve of war, begging him to rethink his plans so that they can avoid war, so that their friendship can continue. Um, so, I mean, it's a reluctant, uh, a reluctant move into war. So, okay, to your question then, um, given that Canada is so, you know, reluctantly enters the war, do they, does Canada and the West exploit the memory of the Holocaust in order to claim that they were the good guys? I think there is some truth in that. Yeah. Um, I think that, um, creating World War II as a very, very simple good and bad tale uh, and using the Holocaust as the, the central pivot point for the bad part of it, which it was, um, but, but, but having that become so deeply embedded in our consciousness in the West definitely served the purpose of um, constructing Canada as the good guy, which then gets taken up every next war you know, I mean, in the Korean War, which happens only a few years after the Second World War, Canadian newspapers are comparing uh, Kim Il-sung to Hitler, and they're saying North Korea is a threat on the same scale as Nazi Germany. Uh, and they continue to do that. I mean, they still pretty much do that. Um, here's where I, so, so yes, I agree with that. But here's where I'm going to go even, even sort of further off script, perhaps, and, and take this claim a little bit further. Um, I think that they are currently regretting to a certain extent, um, the extent to which they allowed us to remember the Holocaust. Here's what I mean. Um, Canada was always on the side of fascism. Uh, the Western powers were always on board with this kind of colonial violence. Um, and here we are in the 2020s, and I know we're going to talk about this more later, but here we are in the 2020s with fascism on the rise again. 
um, very clearly, very evidently across Europe and North America, fascism is on the rise and the ruling classes are sliding further and further and further to the right. And there is this awkward fact um, that, that disrupts their entire drift to the right, which is that most people still think the Nazis were bad. Most of us still understand that the Nazis were fucking bad and Hitler was bad and waving a swastika flag around the streets of Ottawa is bad. They don't necessarily, and I say they, I mean sections of the Canadian ruling class and sections of the Canadian right, um, don't necessarily want us to continue thinking that Nazism was so bad. They're trying to rehabilitate, uh, to a certain extent, fascism. They're waving Nazi flags. They're waving Confederate flags. So they've created a kind of complicated situation for themselves, the Canadian far right, because yes, they used for so long the memory of the Holocaust to justify Canadian interventions around the world. But now they have to grapple with the fact that we do still remember the Holocaust and we still think fascism is bad. Um, so it's, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. But for them. That it was does, awesome. I just, but sorry, I I'll let you go over, Bert, in two yeah. seconds. I just want to, because that, doesn't that remind you of, and I'm not sure if Tyler knows the story about six, what was it, six or eight months ago when uh, the big story was, um, the whether we were going to remove the part in the curriculum that said like you got to tell what the Nazis did that was good and bad like you can't yeah. you have to like right and it was just this like it was something that had existed and it was like their big excuses well it's been in the curriculum for decades it's like yeah fuck man since like the 80s we've been trying to teach kids that like the Nazis killing Jews part was bad but their like view on the economy pretty fucking smart right and exactly it's just, like like exactly like that made me think of that. Sorry, go ahead, Roberta. Well, no, I was just going to say exactly that, that I think you make such an important point, Tyler, that, you know, they're stuck in this box that they created for themselves of good versus evil. And, and as you want to approach the evil, you got to try and reframe this. And I'm wondering, you know, thinking of your um, all, I mean, these guys, as we were talking through the the episode that we did on World War II and um, other people I've talked to about this, this book, you know, this love affair that, that uh, Mackenzie King had with Hitler and this, um, you know, you brought it up again, this like, I want us, I want us to still be friends. Do we have to fight here? Um, you know, maybe they need to write like a, a love story, like a, a historical fiction romance between Mackenzie King and, and Hitler. Like, that's what it feels like. It's so ingrained there. And maybe they can rehabilitate some Nazis. It's definitely <laughs> erotica, like those diary it entries. It is, it's intense. Like, I, I obviously, like they maybe have wrote a different way, like back that languages evolved but like it's the most cringe sounding shit i like oh my good goodness yeah and I, I went through you know weeks of his diaries to sort of you know find those quotes and it's it's pretty nasty it's pretty gross stuff and and it's especially i mean i find the the really cringe kind of like uh you know adulation parts are actually made worse by the moments where he's not necessarily being so cringe he's actually being a little bit more concrete about like I agree with Hitler about this thing, or I agree with you know Hitler makes a good point about this. Oh yeah, there's too many Jews in the movie theaters. He makes a good point. Like it's those sort of more concrete parts that actually make me much more creeped out by the by the kind of adoring. Oh his uh, his hands his eyes are like liquid like all of that stuff. Right, right. right. You know, it's like if it was just that, I would say, well, you, you know, I don't know. He's got some repression and and sexual stuff he hasn't worked out. But if, if it was just that, but because it is actually that grafted onto a, a 
wholehearted um, support for fascism, you know, in its ideological, you know, kind of core. That's what makes it really horrifying to me. You know, I, I think I mentioned earlier how uh, incredibly uh, well-researched this book was. And um, I, I was hoping you could tell me a bit about your, your, your research methods. Obviously, I know um, you're, um, you know, investigating history. You have the library, right? But sort of, beyond, like, what sort of sources do you look for and how do you go finding them? Um, for Can I follow up to that? Sorry, just to, to add to that, which is how do you then find sources that might be critical of the things that are usually mythology? Like Jeremy says, you know, where are the sources? But then all those sources are the normal, normal sources. How do you find ones that are, are critical, I guess, to add it? Which to leads to another question for me that I'll ask after. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, yeah, for sure. One of the things, you know, that I always point out with this is like, um, you know, I was, I was using secondary sources. Like none of this is my original, with the exception of a little bit of the stuff on, on Honduras, because I did some field work there. Um, all of this is relying on secondary sources. So yeah, it's like a lot of hit in the library. I was in that Robarts library a lot. Um, and oh, yeah, I know that one. Yeah. I mean, Hey, in the summer, it's, it's pretty nice. It's pretty quiet. Um, uh, and I was doing a lot of shushing people. So it was especially quiet where I was, but, um, yeah, you know, I, mean, I think it's one of the interesting things about doing work like this is that I there's not that many critical sources. Um, I mean, there are, you know, in the last maybe 10 or 15 years, there have been much more. There's been a lot more critical work on Canada that's come out. So I have, you know, I had the luxury, for instance, when I did the sections on the Congo, uh, I had the luxury of reading Kevin Spooner's work, which was great. You know, it really sourced a lot of what I was doing. Um, but, you know, there isn't a ton of that. David Webster doing great work on, on Indonesia, but outside of some specific studies like that, um, you know, what I have to do actually is use pretty mainstream sources and kind of use them against themselves in a, in a way. Um, you know, I went through a lot of actually just Canadian history textbooks, mainstream Canadian history textbooks, and I would sort of go through them and, and parse out moments where I was like, you know what, that doesn't quite seem there's something behind this. There's, you know, I need to dig deeper into this and then, you know, go find some obscure journal article from whenever that actually digs into the specifics behind that moment that was mentioned in the textbook. And then, you know, essentially I'm using the textbook, but I'm using it against itself. You know, the textbook is trying to skate past something and I'm actually honing in on the thing they're trying to skate past. Um, and I did that a ton. I, I did that a lot. And I, you know, to do that, you have to dig into newspapers, um, so I did a lot of, you know, going through old microfilm um, and, and digging through actual newspaper reports. Um, I did a lot of oh, going through like diaries. I actually read a lot of um, shitty people's diaries. I feel like that's a big component of researching this book is like having to just slog through some racist asshole, you know, describing his march through Africa, killing people. Uh, and it's, you know, disgusting. And I need to take three showers that night. But I end up with you know, this pretty clear picture of what is Canada doing? You know, what is William Stairs, Canadian soldier of empire doing in the Congo? Well, here you go. Here he's, it's in his own words, you know? Um, so yeah, the, the process was kind of, um, it was, a, it was about patching together that sort of the fine grained, um, really granular stuff that I was digging up. And then, but then 
placing that into this wider context, um, because obviously part of what the book is trying to do is like explain that stuff. It's not just one fact after another fact after another fact. It's actually trying to put it all into kind of how do we understand this? How do we make sense of it and not be overwhelmed, but actually come away with some understanding of what Canada is? And for that, um, you know, I actually just relied on a lot of really preeminent um, um, Marxist socialist, uh, you know, uh, historians, people who, you know, it's like, okay, if I'm going to write a section on the the Balkans and Canada's intervention in, in Kosovo in the 90s, uh, well, I, I need to make sure that I really know uh, that history, that I can actually plug Canada's part into it, um, you know, without doing disservice to, you know, the actual history there. So, you know, I'm reading Chip Gagnon and all these other people who, you know, are the sort of leading scholars of that particular piece. Um, you know, Rwanda, when I, when I, uh, I spent a lot of time, you'll have remembered in the book, I spent a lot of time on Rwanda, on the genocide in 1994 and Romeo Dallaire, that whole story, because that to me is one piece that has been so deeply misunderstood in Canada. Um, but part of the reason it's been so misunderstood is that no one in Canada knows the first fucking thing about Rwanda. Absolutely nothing. People are so unbelievably ignorant about that history um, that to really, to really understand how bad Canada's intervention in Rwanda was, you really got to dig into that history. So I had to. I mean, I read like every book in Robart's library on Rwanda and, and I spent weeks like parsing these arguments between different Rwanda scholars, you know, about how things all played out. I'm phoning people. I spoke to a Rwandan journalist in Montreal on the phone. Um, so the, the I guess the answer to your question, Jeremy, is that I had to do those two things, right? I had to, on the one hand, do this really fine grained work with secondary sources uh, like newspapers and diaries and things, and then also blend that with like really trying to come to a satisfying big picture understanding of each of these different historical moments in all these different places. Um, so, I mean, it was fucking exhausting. <laughs> like, yeah, so I'm, I'm wiped. I'm still tired. Like you mentioned before, like you, like you decide um, you want to do a section on uh, Canada's role in Uganda. So, 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 what do you do? You just you go to the library, you 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 sort of brush up on the mainstream scholarship on that, and then look for more critical stuff, or like like how how does that like hmm. more granular process work? Oh, that's a cool question. Um, so no, I don't usually do that. I don't usually start with the mainstream stuff because I find that um, uh, what you read first can often really sink in and, and stay with you. So what I do, it, especially if it's a piece of history or a you know, moment that I don't know very well, is I actually reach out to people who do know it. Um, so for almost every subsection of this book, you know, fortunately over the years of being on the left and connected to people and academics and so on, I usually know someone that I, that I trust a little bit, uh, who I can write to and say, listen, I'm going to, I'm planning on writing six pages about, uh, you know, about Columbia. Um, so can you tell me like, you know, give me the three books that anyone who's going to write about Columbia has to read. Otherwise they're going to sound like an asshole. And so, you know, and then my friend Jasmine says, okay, well, these three books, this is your starting point. You should also read this and that. So then I go and read those first. Um, because, you know, the, my biggest fear when I was working on this was that, you know, that I would get the core stuff about Canada right, 
but that I would get some of the details about other places wrong, or that I would just mis misinterpret them. And no one would know except an expert in that area, but I would look like an absolute asshole to a person in that area. And I, I really don't want to do that. I mean, in some ways that would replicate a lot of the colonial bullshit that I'm trying to crit criticize. So I wanted to make sure that I understood the historical context that I was placing Canada into. Um, so that's what I did. I start with asking people who would be experts, like, what should I start with? Then from there, I start going back to the mainstream sources. I start following up the footnotes from the books that I have read. Uh, and then I start kind of cross-referencing that with the Canada stuff. So let's say I've read about Colombia. I've got a pretty good sense of, of the history there that I want to plug into. Well, now I go to Canadian uh, like trade documents uh, and try to figure out like, okay, well, when is, Cana when is uh, let's say, the Export Development Bank, when are they trying to push into Colombia? How much money are they spending? When are they spending it? What moment in Colombian history does that connect with? Oh, lo and behold, uh, Export Development Canada gets really interested in Colombia at the exact moment that a military government takes over, right? And that's the kind of thing that I can then I can then parse together and piece into a, a story that makes some sense. Um, but it's kind of like, yeah, a lot of what I'm doing is that. It's it's sort of like building a familiarity with the history and then adding Canada's place into it. Does that make sense? One hundred percent. Roberta, you got some. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I, I guess I just want to ask you, Tyler, about what you found most shocking during your research or most, maybe not shocking. I mean, that's very, um, I don't know, tabloid news, but I guess most, uh, you know, core altering, like what, what was it that got to you the most? Because I know in your book what got to me the most, but I'm wondering for you me doing <laughs> this research and digging in and like, it obviously took you years to do that level of research. So it must have, I mean, we already talked about the emotional toll of it, but like, as it gets more and more draining and taking it out, is there something that kind of just is the last, like, I can't fucking believe we did this one more time in this godforsaken situation. Wow. Um, I mean, I'm interested in what those moments were for each of you, but, uh, you know, I guess, I guess for me, you know, I mentioned Rwanda a moment ago. I think um, in the process of writing the book, and I was writing all over the place, I didn't write it in order, you know, I was writing at different moments, but I think the Rwanda story might have been the one that really when when this book went from being something that I thought was important and I should do to something that I was like, I have to do this, you know, like, you know, I was spending 14, 15 hour days in the library. I'm not even exaggerating. I was it was pretty insane. I was I was completely insane, uh, you know, and, and why was I doing that? I think because at some point this work became that important to me. And I, I want to say that it might have been the Rwanda story in particular that really did it for me. Um, I was as ignorant as a lot of people, uh, you know, beyond just sort of a general historical awareness of, of things. I didn't have a lot of specific knowledge uh, on Rwandan history. And so I spent, I would say, the better part of three or four weeks, uh, you know, all day, every day, including the damn weekends, just deep in um, working through Rwanda's history. Uh, which also which means also Burundi's history and to a certain extent Uganda's history. I mean, this is very unified, you know, that, that whole Great Lakes area in Africa. And the extent to which the Romeo Dallaire story ended up being bullshit um, was so overwhelming to me. And I 
I suspect this wouldn't be the case for other people. I suspect there's other big ones that would shock other people. But for me, it was this one because it was so subtle. It was so subtle. The difference between the official story and the real story to the average person would not even necessarily seem like that big of a deal. The, the mainstream story is Romeo Dallaire, you know, went to Rwanda and witnessed a genocide and he was traumatized by it and he tried to stop it and he couldn't and he asked the UN for help and they wouldn't. And so poor old Romeo, you know, had to see, had to witness this terrible thing. And then in Canada, that gets taken up as we are Romeo. We are the good guy. We're so sad that bad things happen. It's so sad that bad things happen in Africa. What's wrong with Africa? Why can't they get it together? Poor Romeo is traumatized because Africans can't get it together and stop killing themselves and each other. That's how the story was constructed. The real story is only, only some margins of difference from that. I mean, the basic arc of that more or less remains true, except that Romeo Dallaire goes to Rwanda knowing nothing about it, literally nothing, can't even find it on a map, shows up in Africa, uh, marches around like an asshole, uh, assuming he knows better than his superior officers, his superior UN officers who are African, assumes that he understands the context in Rwanda better and therefore takes a side in what is a very complicated conflict. A conflict that had been going on for arguably a hundred years that was rooted in Belgian colonialism, which had then exploded uh, after the Rwandan independence in the 1950s and had actually led to several genocides in the years leading up to 1994. Most people just call it the Rwanda genocide of 1994. There was a genocide in 1993 against the group of people who committed the genocide of 1994. That's a big fucking piece of the story that no one ever talks about. And the reason we don't talk about it is because Dallaire took a side. Dallaire explicitly took a side, worked with that side, and then spent the rest of his career promoting the narrative from that side, which is what we now accept as the story of the Rwanda genocide. By the way, the side that Dallaire took was the side of Paul Kagame uh, of the Rwandan Patriotic Front. Paul Kagame took power in 1994 after the uh, genocide. He's still in power. It's 2022. The guy is a dictator. The guy, Rwanda is one of the most repressive states in Africa under this right-wing dictatorship of Paul Kagame put in place in part by Romeo Dallaire. The stories aren't that far apart. The details aren't that far apart. I mean, I didn't contest the fact that a genocide happened. It did, and it was horrible, and Dallaire did witness it. But the context of that, those tiny differences that I just presented changes Canada's relationship to that story so profoundly. And I got to tell you, like at, at the granular level, when you get into the details of all of it and when you're reading the stories of survivors, uh, you know, and you're and you're deep in that history. I mean, I was overwhelmed by it. I was I was deeply emotional. I was upset. I was a basket case for weeks trying to work through this. And I think that the deep, deep injustice, uh, you know, like the I hate to use a word like this, but like the ontological injustice, the injustice at the level of knowledge, injustice at the level of of just like you know, erasing, uh, you know, the history of, in this case, the history of the, the Hutu people in Rwanda. Um, it really, really, it really overwhelmed me. And I think that's the, the one for me that really turned this into, yeah, something that was like a calling. So a quick thought on that before I move to a listener's uh, questions that we have for you. But um, 
I saw Romeo Dallaire speak when I was in journalism school and I, it was like an hour long thing and I was really enamored by him. And uh, yeah, so that was actually a, a big one for me too. Um, maybe not quite uh, the, my number one and we can maybe do that at the end of the episode here, but uh, getting near to the end of our part one uh, of our uh, time with uh, author Tyler Shipley here folks, but we have uh, one of our uh, patrons, uh, Nicola De Nicola, sent in some really great questions, and I want to make sure she's been following along uh, very uh, religiously with us uh, on the book, and I want to make sure we ask uh, some of the things that she talked about. So I'm going to read uh, what she said now and, and let you give us our, her thoughts or your thoughts. So she says, uh, Tyler, throughout your book, you provided many examples of media coverage which upheld the ruling political powers narratives and misled the public about important truthful contexts of so many situations in Canada and internationally in which Canada was involved. This may be slightly out of scope, but can you comment on the rule of the media or the role of the media in Canada historically and present day? Has it always been predominantly a propaganda tool of the ruling party and its capitalist stakeholders? Are there good examples of robust, unbiased, impactful journalism in Canada's history? And are there any optimistic harbingers in the media landscape these days? Great question. Um, also, great plug for uh, Harbinger Media Network. Yeah, I was going to say the same. <laughs> I was going to say the same. Yeah, I caught that too. Um, yeah. I, I, so, what I would say about the Canadian media is that, um, like any privately owned media, like any media in a capitalist country, um, you know, the largest outlets are always going to be controlled by um, capital. Uh, big capital, that is, which means that inherently they have a stake in the same ruling class project that the government represents. I mean, you know, if we talk about who runs Canada, Canada is run by, oh, I know the joke is like three oil companies in a trench coat, but I mean, it's, you know, more or less that it's a few oil companies, a few politicians, uh, you know, all in, in one sort of trench coat that, you know, rule together on behalf of Canadian capital. That's their goal. And I mean, when, when the media is is another wing of Canadian capital, then of course, they're basically going to take the same line. So so I would say that the media has always, the, the mass media in Canada has always been um, essentially on the side of uh, Canadian colonialism and capitalism. Um, not necessarily in a conspiratorial way. I think sometimes we, we, we sensationalize um, media manipulation. It sounds, it's almost fun. It's like, oh, they're brainwashing us. You know, it becomes this kind of conspiratorial thing. Um, it, it's not like that. It doesn't work that way. Um, you know, there's lots of journalists who just try to do journalism. And um, because they themselves have adopted the ruling class's general understanding of the world, they then plug whatever information they have into it. And they just sort of replicate it without even knowing they're replicating something. I mean, the average Canadian journalist writing about Rwanda would also not know anything about Rwanda. So they would be reliant on basically what does Romeo Dallaire say? You know, was, Wikipedia wasn't even around back then, so they couldn't even rely on that. So so a lot of it gets, it happens in very banal ways. It's not this like, you know, one light bulb as the media conglomerates right. sit together, you know, plotting how to change our minds about things. Um, and then of course, you know, to the question of like, has there ever been been more solid media? Of course, there's always been attempts, um, you know, and, and certain sort of smaller newspapers will sometimes, uh, you know, represent that. Um, <clears throat> but 
what typically happens in any in any like really important moment is that critical journalists do get shut down. Um, you know, I mean, they don't get murdered usually as they as Thank they might God. in some places. Yeah, fucked. <laughs> yet, yet, but uh, you know, um, they have their stories shut down and they get fired. They get sacked. This happened a lot. I mean, there were Canadian journalists in Korea trying to report on. Canadian sexual violence in South Korea. Canadian soldiers were committing widespread sexual violence against South Korean women. Um, and there were Canadian journalists trying to expose this story. And their, the, the stories were squashed. They were, they, most of them were never published. And a lot of those journalists were fired. Uh, you know, and journalism then as now is a pretty tough gig to get into. Um, and so, you know, they often found that they couldn't get a job again for doing that work. Um, so I guess, you know, there's an example of where, you know, it's it, there, there have been journalists trying to do, uh, you know, a better version of journalism. But when push comes to shove, um, there hasn't been a lot of space for that. Now, to the question about the present, I mean, I don't know. We, we always get excited when there are new forms of media. We always imagine oh, that Jeremy Appel on the Medicine Hat News. Yeah, yeah, right. Yes. Well, and shout out to, together and shout out to this. Now. And to this podcast and to other podcasts, you know, in the Harbinger Network, like there's some great stuff being produced, great critical stuff being produced. The question for me, you know, and I don't mean to be a pessimist, but it's 2022. So, <laughs> you know, the question for me is, are we fetishizing a new form of media, you know, the podcast in this case, and imagining that, oh, now because we have podcasts, we can reach a wider audience. We can actually finally break through where we couldn't before. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I would. I would love it if that turns out to be the case. Um, but I, you know, in the history of media innovation, the big capital has always found a way to still end up in charge of you know the vast majority of the media that gets consumed. So, so you remember so I, when I, Vice I, I, was gonna was gonna change yes, media in yes. in Buzzfeed. Yes. So listen, I have one more question from Nicola, and then we're going to try to wrap this part up here. But (laughs) I I just read this question again, and I just like a picture in both you and Roberta are going to love this question so much. You might actually be giddy uh, hearing it. But uh, related to the question about media, what are your thoughts about the role of historians and social scientists with post-secondary institutions and academia under attack by right-leaning governments here in Canada and also internationally? Uh, do you think undermining humanities and social science research is just another way for political parties to try to control their capitalistic narratives? And what can be done to protect research and academic freedom? Roberta's clapping. I knew it. I mean, that's such a, that's just like setting you both up for just the best question you could ask for the day. So yeah, should we just get out our strike signs? I mean, like that's that's solid. Just start picketing. And show, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we can just pick it. I mean, yeah, that that, I think there's no question that um, you know that there is an ideological element to the defunding of the social sciences and the attacks on the social science departments uh, in in Canadian universities. Um, you know, I don't know how, again, I always, I'm always reluctant to, to picture the conspiracy, you know, and, and, you know, Stephen Harper sitting there, puppet master, you know, oh, we'll defund these and the, you know, I think it's, it, it, it all happens much more organically. It's, it's, um, you know, who, who's going to be the next, uh, president of 
such and such university. And the board who makes that decision are a bunch of business people. And so they pick someone who's like a business person. Uh, and then the business person gets in there and looks at things and says, oh, what the hell are these left-wing lunatics doing in these, what, what is gender studies anyways? We don't need that. Uh, let's take the resources from that and put it into something important like engineering or business. Um, so I, you know, so I'm reluctant to to embrace a kind of full-throated like it's a conspiracy. They're trying to destroy history, you know, because we are the truth tellers. Ah, I, you know, we exaggerate our importance. I'm sorry, Roberta, but I think we exaggerate our importance a bit on these things. Like, there's not many people reading our shit. Um, <laughs> you know, it's collecting dust. It not even it's not even collecting dust anymore. It's like sit. It's just sitting as lines of code somewhere. So I don't think that it's conscious in that sort of a way. But I mean, I do think there is it is a fact that the social sciences are being defunded uh, and that critical research is being hard is getting harder and harder to produce. And that's going to have impacts. You know, there's going to be less books like this one and and work like the stuff that critical people put out. Uh, if the social sciences keep getting defunded. So, I mean, it is a problem. I don't know, Roberta, if there's anything you want to add to that. Yeah, the only thing I want to add is, I, I mean, I agree it's not a conspiracy that they're looking around, but I do think that we have um, disregarded the level to which conservatives and right-wingers, the ruling class, however we want to frame this, um, do analyze the structures of society and look to where they can um, limit the people's power. And, um, you know, institutions of higher learning are not in any way people's power. Let's not <laughs> pretend that we are. We are colonial, um, you know, ruling class institutions. But um, I do think that conservatives have identified institutions of higher learning as places where critical um, thought could come from and so maybe target that way. I think it's the same thing for unions. Like we kind of talk about the decline in unions as a, a profit motive, right? Like corporations have um, tried to get rid of uh, the union system in order to improve their own profit lines and do all of this stuff. But I do think there is a, a conspiratorial level to some extent of that they realize unions are very powerful as institutions. And so part of a way to get better control over society is to to you know untangle those threads of our power and our 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 solidarity and so that's the only like conspiracy part i'd put on that um and but i do think we need to start giving them more credit for the fact that they do understand power in our society and know where to take it and how yeah to you're right you're right that's a good corrective and i would also add to it too that there's also an ideological level at which people on the right actually just really hate and distrust universities um, and 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 hate and distrust intellectuals uh, as they hate and distrust unions. And so even, you know, to the extent that it may not be uh, when it, when even when it isn't a, a conscious, calculated plan to defund the social sciences, it's a more chaotic but nevertheless still real hatred of the social sciences and distrust of anything that comes out of that. So yeah, there's absolutely that too. So that was a great question. She's an amazing uh, supporter of the show and uh, that was extremely thoughtful. So thank you, Nicola, for doing that. Um, we have to wrap up this uh, uh, part of the episode, but I think 
So Tyler said about uh, however long ago, he said he'd be interested in hearing each of our, what was that one moment or whatever. And I'm going to say mine really quickly, and that'll give you an idea of how long each of you has to say the same thing. But for me, it was the, uh, I always grew up with the idea that uh, like anyone else of this inferiority comp complex of Canada, that we were, we, we presented ourselves as this inferiority thing. And I was uh, really blown away by just how prominent and uh, independent we are in our pursuit of things. Uh, the 70% of the world's mining corporations of Canada kind of, that was one that really stuck in my head. So anyways, that was for me, just learning that Canada was, uh, not just on the coattails of someone else. Go ahead, uh, Roberta. Uh, for me, it's it's funny because I, as I said, I'm a historian. I spent the first three quarters of the book nodding my head like, yeah, I knew this, I knew this, I knew that. I should teach about that part. I forgot I should include that. And then we got to Haiti and I was like, what the serious fuck is this? Like, I had no idea about the depths to which the Canadian government has controlled the situation in Haiti. I knew there was some, you know, nefarious crap going on, but um, I hope we talk about it a little more in the next part. But um, that's the one that really, really hit me hard. For me, it was definitely the part about Canada's role in uh, putting uh, Samosa into power in Nicaragua. Um, I, because again, you know, when you read about U.S. foreign policy in Latin America, um, it, it's that Samosa was like the U.S.'s guy, and he became that. But I, I, I had no idea that how instrumental Canada was in putting him into power against the objections or at least reluctance of the United States at that time. That to me, because, you know, the, the Linda McQuaid book, you, you critique, I'd read that book and um, you know, I, I, I quite like uh, Linda McQuaid, but um, I, I also found this notion that, that like we Canada are like good guys that are just being uh, taken for a ride by the United States, uh, like it, it didn't set right with so, yeah, it didn't like set right with me in to to, to have the concrete example there, um, where it's like, well, no, actually, um, in, in in that particular instance, it was um, it was Canada who uh, led the way in that, and of course, it makes sense when you put place it in the context of how dependent the Canadian state is on like mining and extraction um, at home and abroad. Uh, Mo, you're, uh, you're up. Mo Cranker, producer and editor who has asked uh, all of zero questions so far today will always sat back and let us rant. So um, this is your chance, buddy. Uh, what was the moment in the book that just sort of stuck with you the most or what about the book stuck out the most? You guys don't need any help talking, so I <laughs> have not talked. Uh, Good response. Forgotten Corner drinking game uh, when Jeremy takes too long to answer something and when Roberta reminds everybody that she's a historian. Uh, take a drink. <laughs> uh, on a As a historian. Note, um, a lot of Scott, what Scott said is my experience with the book, but I think uh, you know, my air quote favorite part of the book, even though it's awful to read about, was the first hundred pages or so. Uh, over the past couple of years, I've learned so much. I did Indigenous Canada, but 
and a couple other, you know, just reading and learning and listening about Indigenous experiences in Canada and the specific examples about like, sexual violence and all the hypocrisy and awful values that our country was founded on. And it extended into the book, but it helped explain why things are the way they are today. And our ancestors from not that long ago aren't that far from where we're at now. It's 100 years ago isn't all that fucking long ago. No. Yeah. 50 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. Yeah. 96, right? Um, so Tyler, just as an author who, uh, and, an, and, uh, and a teacher, how much did you just fucking love sitting back and listen to us all talk about and uh, a book that you wrote and must have been, that's got to be good. It's surreal, actually. It's uh, it's really it's really gratifying. And I, you know, I talked about those long days in the library. Man, those were long days, long fucking lonely ass days. And and there were times where it was I was really miserable, you know, because I'm working through such miserable shit, you know, and I'm just in it. I was dreaming about it. Um, you know, I even remember this is a ridiculous story, but I, I remember at one point being deep in a section. And, uh, you know, I, I went on a date, uh, you know, and it was like, okay, I'm going to be in the world again. And I went on a date after one of these writing days. And it was a disaster because I spent the whole time talking about some horrible shit that Canada did somewhere. Um, you know, <laughs> That's like, a nice so, dress, but have you fucking heard about Rwanda? Yeah, yeah, honestly, at one point I caught myself and I was like, I'm so sorry. I've been talking about Rwanda for an hour. Um, so, I mean, it was a hard process to actually write the book. And, 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 and as I say, I was so alone. In, in that process so to sit here and yeah have you guys all talk about the different parts of the book and the way they landed i mean i spent so much time thinking about how is this going to land how, what if i say it this way what if i add this should i frame it this way so it's really it's really gratifying and i'm honestly so grateful to all of you for reading it and and even then sharing this with me and and, and i we're going to talk a lot more about uh what's happening today with uh how sort of how the book relates as we get into part two here and uh i'll just say obviously there's going to be a lot of people out there that read this book from a uh from an angle where they it does not rip them from that mindset and they probably end up pretty pissed at you and we'll talk about a little bit about that to start part two when we get here but i'm just going to say uh thanks to everybody who's been listening this week join us next week for part two with uh author tyler shipley to our uh patrons and to our listeners we can't do this without you to uh, nicola de nicola to darius Beregard, to big red machine to dave bond miller to chris derwell thank you guys for everything you guys do specifically to everyone else we'll see you guys in a week thank you take care guys bye 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 bye